So we're going to do more on this topic that we have been on for the last several weeks. This is our fifth week now on Always Have an Answer. This morning I'm going to be talking about defending the faith in the age of deception, which we've done a lot of that already, but we're going to do a little bit more science today. Is that okay with you? I was a little surprised with the reception last week about the teaching because I I know that not everybody likes science, but a lot of people seem to really enjoy that. So uh, we're going to do a little bit more of that today. So if you are at Romans chapter 1, that's going to be our master text this morning, Romans chapter 1. And we've got a lengthy reading this morning, so I hope um, you'll be able to to bear with me. Uh, But stand when you find that, Romans chapter 1. And there's a reason why I'm reading this. Uh, some of you, as we're reading this, may wonder, well, what's this got to do with defending the faith? Well, I'm going to explain why we're reading this master text after we get done reading it. So here we go. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. So uh, significantly longer reading than we usually do. Verse 16, here we go. The Apostle Paul, writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says... I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel of righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse." For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. It's talking about idol worship there. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Well, that's a very sober segment of scripture there, but the reason that I wanted to read that is to make the point that um, if we continue to suppress the truth and push the truth of God away from us, eventually he can give us over to a depraved mind. And the, the end result of that is we become more wicked, more perverse, and more twisted as time goes by all the while claiming ourselves to be wise when we've really become fools. And so much of the church today even is like that, but so much of the culture that describes, doesn't it? So on that note, I want to read to you a Charles Spurgeon quote because this really exemplifies, as does that master text, the need to be out there sharing our faith and to present truth to people who have been blinded by the lies of Satan and the enemy. And Charles Spurgeon said this, we must school and train ourselves to deal personally with the unconverted. We must not excuse ourselves, but force ourselves to the irksome task until it becomes easy. So even the great Charles Spurgeon said that evangelism, sharing our faith, is an irksome task. It's frustrating sometimes. Because you pour out your heart to some people and they're like, either call you names or write you off as a wacko or there's just so many objections that seem so ridiculous to you and I. But to some people, the most ridiculous objection seems to make perfect sense to them. Claiming themselves to be wise, they have become fools. God needs us in the world, out in the world, proclaiming the light of his truth to a lost and dying world. Uh, now, uh, by the way, I want to give Crystal um, credit for that uh, quote. Uh, some of you all really help me preaching my messages because you post stuff on Facebook that I'm like, oh, that, that's, good. that's a good one. I'm going to use that. So thank you, Crystal, for that one. Um, <laughs> So uh, as we get started here, man, I've got tons of content today, so I don't know how long this is going to take me. But if you liked last week's, I think that you'll enjoy this one just as much. But you'll have to be patient with me because I've got a fairly significant amount of content today. But I want to read to you something that appeared in the April 16th, 2003 edition of the Independent, uh, there's Independent Co.UK. It's anyway, it's a, a British journal. Uh, entitled, The Church Will Be Dead in 40 Years' Time. Talking about the church in the UK, the church will be dead in 40 years' time. This is from 2003. They state in the article, let's read together, Holy Week has begun with an expert prediction that the Christian church in this country, the UK, will be dead and buried within 40 years. It will vanish from the mainstream of British life with only 0.5% of the population attending Sunday services of any denomination, according to the country's leading church analyst. That's a church analyst that predicted that. So humanism seems to be winning in different nations of the world. Not all nations. There are some nations where, man, the Lord is really, really doing some amazing things. But in some of the more westernized nations, humanism seems to be 
winning. But we have a God that is able to overcome all that. Now, I want to give you a statistic, though, about teens and church life. And this is uh, American research. Uh, this is from the year 2000. Um, Barna Research Group, and he's kind of the Christian pollster and researcher, he says this, when asked to estimate the likelihood that they will continue to participate in church life once they are living on their own, levels dip precipitously to only about one of every three teens, 30%. So somehow the church is not doing a very good job of convincing teens and people, you know, those of being raised up in the church, young people being raised up in the church, that what we have to offer is different or better than the humanism they're being taught at school. On that note, I want to read to you what uh, Reverend Vadi Bauchman said about public schools. I think this is, man, this hits between the eyes. He said, parents need to stop being surprised when they send their kids to Caesar for their education and they come home as Romans. That excited about six or eight of you. Um, no, and I get it. I get it. I mean, I really do. I mean, um, some of you, you know, some, a lot of people just sending their kids to private school or homeschool is... I get it. There's, sometimes it's not really an option depending on the situation of life that you're in. But you see, I do want to make a point about this, and this is kind of setting the stage for where we're going in this teaching this morning. There is a clear and organized attack on the Bible and Christianity in this culture. And public schools and universities are in full participation in that. And if you don't believe that, just consider right here in the little supposedly conservative town of Columbus, Indiana, how the Bartholomew County School Corporation is pushing homosexuality, transgenderism, and all forms of sexual immorality on our young kids through some of the vile and unbelievably disgusting materials they're pushing in the public library and the school libraries. And this is the materials that your children are being exposed to. And a lot of times, parents have no idea it's going on under the radar, okay? So that's why there, we, we need good alternatives like a Liberty Academy. And also, yeah. And also homeschooling. Now, well, like I said, I realize that homeschooling is not always an option for some people. And if you're in a situation where your kids have to be in public school, well, you might want to consider doing the due diligence as parents of deprogramming your children, which that's a big undertaking. If your kids are in, in school 40 hours a week, right, they're being programmed in one direction, and you've got a big task of deprogramming them when they come home. So how does all this relate to evangelism then? Well, parents, I want to speak to you for a second. Your first and most important mission field is right there in your own home. That's why Donna and I said when we got married, Donna and I said we would rather live in a shack before we ever send our kids to public school. And we, we meant that. Uh, we absolutely meant that. I'll give you our testimony about that later on. But God bless that decision. 
because we became a, a one-income family early in our marriage, and we couldn't really afford to be a one-income family. But God definitely blessed that because when Donna got pregnant with Hannah very early, and I think Donna was pregnant like five weeks after our honeymoon, and so we, we were very serious about that commitment. And when Hannah was born, Donna quit her job. We became a one-income and a one-car family. And uh, we were struggling for a little while, but God blessed that decision. It didn't take long. God blessed our, our decision. He honored that decision. Okay? So all that is kind of a, my introductory thoughts this morning. Let's take a look at the weapons being used to cast doubt on the Bible and how the modern church today tends to respond. So look at the screen with me. I have some animations for you. So the skeptic there says the Bible can't be trusted in this scientific age. And the world comes along with their F-16 technology and uh, torpedoes and, and bombs um, the Bible with things like evolution, age dating methods, ape men, millions of years, no global flood, etc. And then the skeptic says, aha, yeah, yeah, I'd like to see what the church can do about this. And then the church comes along and doesn't really address these things at all, but just with our little biplane technology, just says, trust in Jesus. And that's, that's a good thing to preach, trust in Jesus. I mean, we need to preach that. But it, we need to be addressing this stuff that is being pushed on our culture and especially upon our children. We need to have a response to these things. So because the world is... They're, they're using their supersonic technology to spread the message that the Bible is not true all over the globe and significantly outpacing our little biplane technology of just trust Jesus and not really addressing any of these things. Okay, So we need to be equipped to, to address these questions and objections. And increasingly common objection that I'm going to be dealing with this morning is this right here. Why should I put my faith in a belief system that is based on a book of myths and fairy tales? Now that science has disproven the very foundational claims of Christianity, why should I believe anything your book has to say? All right. Now, once again, a little bit more animation for you to, to make a point. Okay, on this illustration I have on the screen for you. There on the left, there is the fortress of humanism that's built upon the foundation of evolution and millions of years and that man decides truth. And the symptoms of that belief system are things like abortion, uh, disintegration of the family, homosexual behavior, racism, pornography, euthanasia, etc. Now what the church in our culture today, it tends to do, uh, the, over there on the right-hand side is the fortress of Christianity or of the church. Here's what we tend to do. We tend to shoot at the symptoms but ignore the foundation. So we're shooting at racism and homosexual behavior and all that, but we're missing addressing the foundation of that belief system. So look at the people on the fortress of Christianity there. The one at the top is completely asleep. He's not doing anything. The one below that, when on the left, he's shooting at the symptoms. The one on the right to him is shooting at him. He's aiming at him. We Christians tend to do that once in a while. We shoot one another rather than taking on these cultural issues. And then the one below that is actually shooting at the foundation of creationism and, and God's word is truth because there's some very liberal Christians out there now. There's churches right here in this town that are very liberal that don't believe the foundation of the, uh, God's word is truth anymore. You decide your own truth. 
See, then that's where it says in, in Psalm 11, 3, the problem is this that we're dealing with right now. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? But the solution is this, is found in Isaiah 58, 12. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. So now let's take a look at uh, the people on the fortress of Christianity. Uh, there's one at the bottom, uh, actually two over there um, toward the bottom and one above him that's shooting at the foundation of, of evolution and millions of years and man decides truth, shooting at the foundation of humanism, while the other ones at the same time are now dealing with some of the symptoms. They're shooting at the symptoms and uh, no one's fighting each other anymore. They're all united in their effort to blast away at humanism and the effort is successful when we can all get on the same page. And that's where creation evangelism comes in to show that the very first pages of the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, can be trusted. And see, a lot of people say, well, you know, it doesn't matter. Evolution doesn't matter. All the, the millions of years and all those things don't matter because at least, you know, they're not attacking the cross. We still have the cross. Preach the cross. All we need to do is preach the cross. I beg to differ with that because if, if people doubt the very first pages of Scripture, it invalidates the rest of it. If people doubt the ver that, that God created the earth, the heavens and the earth, in six literal days, then that invalidates the rest of it. So why would people believe that the, the message of the gospel when the very first pages of the Bible they can't trust? Is this making sense? With creation evangelism, then, there, there are answers to where did God come from? Where did... Cain get his wife. Uh, how about dinosaurs, ape men, fossils, the age of the earth, Noah's Ark, etc. All these things are questions and objections that people have to the, the veracity and the validity of the Word of God. So I want to deal with um, a question here before we get going with some more science today. And I want to address the question, how did the universe get here? Because I think this is very important for you to understand as Christians uh, and then we'll get into some of the science, okay? So in Genesis 1, verses 3 through 5, uh, it says this, and you know this passage. It says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And then it goes on to explain what God did on day 2, day 3, day 4, etc., Okay, now, in the Gospel of John chapter 1, this is a very important passage to understand as well for a number of reasons, but it says in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who are we talking about? Jesus, exactly. And verse 3, it says, Through him, Jesus, or the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, it elaborates on that point. So let's read this together. For he has rescued us from the, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the, his son, Jesus, he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, for by him, Jesus, 
All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So who created the universe then? God did, yes, but more specifically, Jesus did. Because Jesus was the word before he ever became Jesus. He was the creative force of God that created the universe. So then on that note, with that foundation established, um, let's, let's dive into this question. Did creation come about in six days or billions of years? Well, I want you to know that the Hebrew word translated into English in Genesis as day in chapter one of Genesis is the word yom, which literally means from sunrise to sunset. It's a 24-hour day. And we're going to get into why some people try to manipulate that as being a longer period of time than a 24-hour day. We'll get to that in a few minutes. So let's talk about the age of the earth then. Is it billions of years or just around 6,000 years? See, theologians and creation scientists have studied the chronologies in the Bible. You know, begat, uh, this person begat that person and that person begat that person. Okay, those are the chronologies. And they are able to determine based upon that historical record that the age of the earth is approximately 6,000 years according to Scripture. Now, the age of the earth, according to the Jewish calendar, is very similar, almost 6,000 years, not quite. Uh, as a matter of fact, the current year, according to the Jewish calendar, is 5783. So according to the Jewish calendar, which started at creation, um, we're about 5,700 years into this. Okay, that's uh, how long the earth is, according to the chronologies in the Bible and the Jewish calendar. Okay, so now I'm going to validate this with some of the things that are coming up here. So that, that's where we're going to get into some science here. So what you're looking at on the screen is a DNA strand. And within the, the DNA, uh, DNA, of course, is a, a little energy molecule within the cells called the mitochondria. The mitochondria is the energy factory of the cells. Well, scientists were, were studying the mitochondria, and they recently discovered that all mitochondrial DNA has one common ancestor, get this, and came from a female that they called in that research mitochondrial Eve. And guess how old they determined mitochondrial Eve to be? About 6,000 years. Well, now, by the way, these were secular scientists that were doing this, so they, they were studying that that. The mitochondrial DNA discovered that it had one common ancestor that was about 6,000 years old. They called her mitochondrial Eve, but they didn't like the conclusion. They didn't like it that mitochondrial Eve was about 6,000 years old. So they redid all the, the equations to come up with a different length of time. Of course, right? But, but I think this is fascinating research that mitochondrial Eve, are the, are all of our mitochondrial DNA had one common ancestor, uh, a female from 6,000 years ago that they called mitochondrial Eve. <laughs> very, very neat stuff. All right, so how about this one? Um, so let's address some more uh, problems with the millions of years or billions of years theory with the age of the earth. 
See, the earth, as you see kind of pictured there in that illustration on the screen, the earth has a magnetic field that scientists have been able to measure since about 1850. And they know that since that time, the magnetic field around the earth is deteriorating. Now, at the rate at which that magnetic field is deteriorating, if you did the math backwards, only as far back as about 25,000 years, the magnetic field around the earth would have been so strong 25,000 years ago that it would have been equivalent to a magnetic star. Nothing could have lived here 25,000 years ago. So yet another problem there with the billions of years theory. Let me give you another one. Scientists have also been able to determine that the sun is burning itself out at a rate of 1,000 thermonuclear explosions per second and will one day lose its power and its ability to sustain life on Earth. And at the rate that, that the sun is burning itself out, it should have been dead millions of years ago if it existed for billions of years. It couldn't have lasted this long at the rate that it's burning itself out. Likewise, scientists have discovered that the Earth is steadily losing its heat. The planet, the Earth, is steadily losing its heat. And at the rate at which the planet is losing its heat, it should have been stone-cold frozen 40 million years ago. Okay, if the earth is billions of years old. If the earth is billions of years old, at the rate at, at which it's losing its heat, it would have been stone cold frozen to the center 40 million years ago. So there's all kinds of problems like this with the, the billions of years theory. We talked last week about um, how it doesn't take millions of years to carve canyons out of rock. A lot of uh, people believe, scientists believe, that that erosion, water erosion over millions of years caused these big canyons. But we talked about last week how the explosion of Mount St. Helens carved out a canyon um, that with finely stratified rock layer um, in three hours. But actually, and I didn't mention this last week, but actually it wasn't just one canyon that it carved out. It carved out three canyons in one day, one of them being 30 feet deep. No, I'm sorry, 100 feet deep, okay? So it doesn't take uh, millions of years to carve out canyons. All it takes is catastrophic conditions. We talked about that a little bit last week. But I also want to address this question about uh, petrified wood because we get the, the, this mindset, this, uh, you know, we've been taught all of our lives that it takes millions of years to petrify wood. Well, science is showing something different now because what you're looking at is a forest of trees, tree stumps, because this is at Spirit Lake at Mount St. Helens. So, you know, you're seeing all those tree stumps that they were broken off by the explosion, but all of those tree stumps, by the way, are becoming petrified before our eyes. So it doesn't take millions of years to petrify wood. All it takes is catastrophic conditions. So again, the, the forest of tree stumps at Spirit Lake at Mount St. Helens Volcano in Washington has become petrified right before our eyes, and that's just since 1980, okay? And by the way, speak, speaking of petrification, there's a petrified ham for you, okay? Yeah, petrified ham. Uh, but let's go on and talk about ape men, okay? Because this is one of uh, evolution's prize ideologies as, as ape men. So let's talk about these various ape men and how they're not reliable as transitional species. Are, are you okay with this so far? Is this okay? Okay. All right. So let's talk about the first one. Let's talk about Neanderthal man. 
Um, sometimes I do wonder if I was descended uh, from Neanderthal man because I've got this Breton in it anyway. But <laughs> Neanderthal man. Okay, so A.J.E. Cave said at the International Congress of Zoology in 1958 that his examination of the skeleton showed that it belonged to an old man who suffered from arthritis. So Neanderthal man is fully human. Let's go to the next one, Cro-Magnon man. Well, one of the earliest and best established fossils is at least equal in physique and brain capacity to modern man. As a matter of fact, that picture on the screen there is Cro-Magnon man. Look at the size of that cranium. There's nothing transitional about that. That's, that's the size at least as big, if not slightly bigger, as modern man. So what's the difference? Cro-Magnon man is likewise fully human. All right, let's talk about Lucy, because Lucy is the, um, she, that they, they named Australopith, Australopithecus, easy for me to say, is the scientific name for what they called Lucy, who is on display at the Smithsonian as a science's example of a transitional species from ape to human. But many reputable scientists, not a few, many reputable scientists believe Lucy to be just another knuckle walker, an extinct species of ape, not an ape man. So Lucy was fully ape. Now let's talk about another one, Pilltown Man. Well, Pilltown Man was later found to be fraudulently constructed from the skull of a human and the jawbone of a modern ape. And what they did is they, they filed the teeth of the human skull to make the teeth appear more ape-like, and then they treated the bones with a chemical to make them appear fossilized. So Pilltown Man was a complete fraud. It was a complete fraud. All right, let me deal with another one here, Nebraska man. Well, this requires a little bit more of an explanation here. In 1925, the American Civil Liberties Union, or the ACLU, took some of Christianity's leading spokespeople to task in the famous Scopes Monkey Trial. And it was their intention to introduce fossil evidence quote-unquote, that would disprove the biblical account of creation and allow the theory of evolution to be taught in public schools. Well, the ACLU lost that initial case, but they won the appeal in the Supreme Court based upon the fossil evidence, which was one single tooth that they said came from a prehistoric ape man that they called Nebraska man. Now, after the Scopes trial, paleontologists went to the site where the tooth was found and dug up the rest of the skeleton. And they found that it had come from an extinct pig. Nebraska man was not a man at all, it was a pig. Yeah, a pig made a monkey out of science. But the verdict was never reversed. And evolution has been taught as fact in public schools ever since. What a shame. Let me deal with another issue here, the, the light from the stars. This is another one that, that people use to, to supposedly prove that the earth has existed for millions, 
maybe billions of years because science says that, the, that stars are so far away that it takes millions of years for the light to reach our eyes. Well, there's a very easy explanation for this, folks, if you believe the Bible. And that's this. God created the universe and the earth and all of life on earth with the appearance of age. In other words, Adam was a full-grown man the minute he was created. Day one, God didn't create Adam as a baby. He created him as a full-grown man. All the, all the, the life on earth, I mean, you, you can't have you know, all the animals to be little babies. They're not going to reproduce, right? So you create him as, as full-grown animals. Likewise with the plants, you create him with the appearance of age. Day one... The, the earth was full of vegetation, and the oceans were teeming with life and animals all over the earth. So God created everything on day one with the appearance of age, including Adam and Eve. So easy explanation for that if you believe the Bible. But I want to give you some quotes right now from some very, very smart people when it comes to evolution. And, if, and when, when evolutionists become honest, intellectually honest... Um, they begin to change how they think and believe about certain things. And you're going to see some quotes right now from some people who have become honest on the subject and see it for what it is. And I don't even know if some of these people are Christians or not, but they, they see it. They see evolution for what it is. The first one is British scientist Dr. T.L. Moore, who said, the more one studies paleontology, which is the the fossil record, the more convinced one becomes that evolution is based upon faith alone. Faith alone. Here's one from Professor Louis Bonnois, who's director of research at the National Center of Scientific Research. He said, evolution is a fairy tale for grown-ups. This theory has helped nothing in the progress of science. It is useless. It's useless. And I love this next one from Malcolm Muggeridge, who is a British philosopher and journalist. And he says this, and boy, do I ever agree with this. He says, I myself am convinced that the theory of evolution, especially to the extent to which it has been applied, will be one of the greatest jokes in the history books of the future. Posterity will marvel that so flimsy and dubious a hypothesis could be accepted with the incredible credulity it has. In other words, it's being passed off as credible, but it is not credible. In fact, it was Charles Darwin himself, get this quote, that, that said, to suppose that the eye... Now, by the way, before I read this quote, the eye has all these different mechanisms and there's a pulley system in the muscles of the eyes. It's very specifically designed, okay? And then the, 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 the mechanisms of the eye for focus and, and all that, just an incredible, just the eye itself is an incredible example of God's creation. And Charles Darwin acknowledges this. He says, to suppose that the eye, with all its intentable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberrations, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Charles Darwin said that. And then I love this quote from Albert Einstein. He said, 
In view of such harmony in the cosmos, which I, with my limited human mind, am able to recognize, there are yet people who say there is no God. But what really makes me angry is that they quote me for the support of such views. Sir Isaac Newton said, atheism is so senseless. The father of modern day physics, Sir Isaac Newton, no dummy. Atheism is so senseless. And then my last quote, Francis Bacon said, a little science estranges a man from God, but a lot of science brings him back. And that's what we're dealing with today with all the massive amount. Look, I had to pick and choose what I, I, I talked about in this teaching and, and last week's teaching. Um, depending on how much you're really enjoying this, I may actually do some more of this. I actually had some people come up to me last week and had more questions about dinosaurs. A lot of people, a lot of people really like that subject of dinosaurs. So we may talk a little bit more about that. Um, so um, I'll just have to be led by the Holy Spirit on where I go uh, from this. I've got a teaching already. Um, on universalism for next week that uh, I think will be very beneficial for you. But afterward, afterward we may follow up with a, a few more points about dinosaurs. Uh, which, by the way, you know, some people have asked, well, you know, where do the, all the dinosaurs go? If man and dinosaur lived contemporaneously at the same time, where did, where did they all go? Well, again, I can't get into that at length today, but there's been dinosaur sightings um, right up until the last one that I heard about was 1999 in New Guinea. Um, it was a large, in New Guinea, they reported a large upright walking lizard that was as big as a dump truck. Um, and in the Congo, there is a creature called Mokili Mobambi that the, um, the natives call him Mokili Mobambi. And I think it was back in... Maybe it was the 90s. I don't remember exactly the time frame. I'll have to go back and look that up. I didn't, pre wasn't prepared to talk about this today, but I thought I would bring this up very quickly since you all seem to like that dinosaur topic a lot. Um, but there was a team from the University of Chicago that sent a team down to the Congo. And, and by, by the way, there's a rainforest in the Congo, just, just the rainforest itself. Or I'm sorry, no, just the swamp in the rainforest, just the swamp is as big as the state of Alabama. And that's where Mokili Momambi lives. And so they, they sent a team down there, an expedition team, to try to find Mokili Momambi because this is supposedly a dinosaur, a seropod dinosaur like Brontosaurus or Brachiosaurus. Well, they, they, they didn't find it because if there's only a few of these, trying to find a creature even that big in a swamp that's a, the size of Alabama is like trying to find a needle in a haystack. So the University of Chicago was so interested in this, they spent quite a bit of money to send a team down there to look for Mokili Momambi. And they talked to the, some of the natives, and they showed them pictures of just, you know, common animals that we would know that would live in the rainforest, monkeys. They showed them a picture of a monkey. They said, yeah, that's a monkey, or the, whatever their name for the monkey was. The elephant, yeah, that's an elephant. Um, the leopard, yeah, that's a leopard. Then they showed them a picture of a seropod dinosaur. Yeah, that's Mokili Momambi. And then they waited. Next. It's like, yeah, that's just one of the common animals around here. So there is evidence, even 
very recently that man and dinosaur are still living together. As a matter of fact, have you ever heard of the fish coelacanth? Okay, coelacanth was a, uh, uh, they, uh, they found a fossil of coelacanth, and they thought that this fossil, because of these dating methods are so incorrect, and by the way, um, let me just talk about carbon dating for a second. You know they've carbon dated Coke cans for three million years old? Carbon dating is, not, is very in, unreliable. Okay, so uh, they, they found this, these, these fossil remains of this large fish called, that they end up called coelacanth, supposedly an ancient fish millions of years old. Well, guess what? In the 1930s, a live coelacanth was found swimming in the ocean. And since then, they've found dozens of coelacanths. Okay? So again, dating methods aren't always reliable. So man and dinosaur have lived contemporaneously, so why aren't dinosaurs around today? Well, th there is speculation that after the flood, the atmosphere of the earth changed and there was, less, there was a less oxygen-rich atmosphere than ever before. That's why mankind started, uh, their, their life expectancy started to decrease from like 900 years down to 500 years, down to 200 years, and now the lifespan that we have today. It, it's been speculated that ha that has a lot to do with the oxygen-rich atmosphere that was around the earth at that time that is no longer um, that rich atmosphere. So some of these larger creatures could no longer survive, and climate change, because these were lizards, a lot of them, wiped a lot of them, a lot of them out as well, and hunting, because some of these creatures were very dangerous. And so just like that we've done today, we've cleansed you know, our society of dangerous creatures. So like in Columbus, Indiana, in this area, especially up in, uh, around where I live in uh, Shelby County. There's lots of bears that used to live there. Used to, I mean, bears were very common in the, this part of the state. There's not a bear to be found that I know of in Indiana any longer. A lot of that has to do with just mankind moving in. And do you know that there's three species a day that goes on the extinct list? Three a day. So a lot of dinosaurs died out because of expansion of, of humanity and et cetera for a lot of different reasons, okay? So um, the, the expansion of humanity crowds out uh, wildlife and three species. That just tells you how unbelievably rich um, you know, God's creation is that three species a day can die off and we no longer see them again, yet we still have all these animals. Um, gosh, that leads me in just so many other different directions. Like, how could God fit all those animals in the ark? He didn't have to fit all those animals in the ark. Like, dinosaurs, as an example, were probably on the ark, but they were probably, the bigger ones were probably in infant form. The average dinosaur was the size of a dog. But it's only, you know, the, the massive, huge ones, we, they could have taken little tiny baby ones and, you know, weaned them along the way and, and let them off the ark in a year, and they still would have been relatively small, and they grew from there. So, and plus, let's talk about like the dog kind. God didn't have to take all the different species of dog on the ark. He could have taken like a wolf, for example, and then, you know, nature would have done the rest with all of the different, different species and variations of dog that we see now, okay? And that's not evolution, by the way. That's just variations within the species. Okay, I didn't plan to talk about any of that. That's just, I'm rolling off the top of my head here. 
But I do want to talk about this right here, the gap theory, because this is an attempt for a lot of people to fit millions of years into the Bible. See, the gap theory asserts that God used evolution to create everything and that there was a long gap of time, millions of years or billions of years, between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, thus attempting to explain dinosaurs, evolution, etc. But there's a big, big problem with that. Here's the problem. The problem is that this assumes that there was death and decay prior to sin. There was death and decay prior to sin. See, Romans 5.12 says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death so that death spread to everyone. So folks, listen. Christians can't have it both ways. The Bible indicates that there was no death before the fall of man. So if you believe in millions of years, then you believe that there was death, pain, killing, disease, thorns, struggle, suffering, and extinction before there was sin in the world. And that's not what the Bible says. So once again, I want to emphasize death came through one man's sin. That's what the Bible tells us. Uh, let me read Romans 5.12 again, and then I'm going to tack on verse 14 as well. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, death reigned from when? The time of Adam. Even over all those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did. So folks, listen, if there was prehistoric life that existed millions of years before man, that means that death, killing, and disease existed before man. So you can't say you believe the Bible and believe in millions of years. They, the two don't mesh. All right. How then do we reconcile that there was no death before the fall of man with the fact that some animals are and were apparently equipped for killing with sharp teeth and sharp claws and what have you. <clears throat> well, there's evidence that God may have performed some genetic re-engineering at the fall as he did when he turned the serpent into a snake in Genesis chapter 3. Remember that? The serpent didn't look like the snake that we know today. The serpent apparently was, was kind of like almost humanoid with arms and legs, and God did some genetic re-engineering and turned it into a snake. Um, let me give you an example of that genetic re-engineering. Uh, scientists have discovered that there's a mosquito, a breed of mosquito in uh, Alaska that drinks nectar instead of blood. So that may be evidence of God's original design. There's some lizards that look like ferocious carnivores with sharp teeth that eat nothing but plants. And get this, there was even a lioness that was discovered in the 1930s that would not touch meat. Now, I've got a picture of her. They named her Little Tyke. Uh, she was a completely healthy 350-pound uh, lioness. And there you see one of the, the care, uh, whatever you call those people that care for animals, uh, he's handing her, he's offering her a big piece of meat right there, and she's turning away in disgust. She's rejecting it. She never ate a, a, one piece of meat. She was a vegetarian her entire life. She lived a, a normal, healthy life, long lifespan, and healthy weight, 350 pounds. And 
I want to show you another picture of little Tyke because I want you to see who her best friend on this farm was. There's her best friend, a little lamb. Now they lay down together. Does that give you a picture of something biblical? The lion will lay down with the lamb, the Bible says. That's, a, that's almost a prophetic friendship right there, don't you think? Yeah, that was in the 1930s. Likewise, pandas and gorillas have sharp canine-like teeth that instead of being used to chew or eat meat, are used to chew bamboo. So this, this is just some examples of, of uh, God's original design um, because maybe all animals were, with sharp teeth were like this. Well, clearly they were. But there was some genetic re-engineering after the fall. And also, by the way, speaking of genetic re-engineering, scientists have discovered that that thorns are actually mutant flowers. Isn't that wild? There was no thorns in the garden. But after the fall, then there was thorns and thistles. God cursed the ground, remember? And so thorns are mutant flowers. And this puts me in remembrance of Romans chapter 8, where it talks about the frustration of God's creation. Let's read this together. All creation is eagerly waiting for God to reveal who his children are. Creation was subjected to frustration, but not by its own choice. The one who subjected it to frustration did so in the hope that it would also be uh, set free from slavery to decay in order to share the glorious freedom that the children of God will have. We know that all creation has been groaning with the pains of childbirth up to the present time. However, not only creation groans, we who have the Spirit as the first of God's gifts also groan inwardly. We groan as we eagerly wait for our adoption, the freeing of our bodies from sin. So creation was subjected to frustration after the fall when God cursed the ground and did some genetic reengineering. And this leads me to my last point here before I give you some resources for your own learning. And that leads us all the way back around to the glorious hope of the gospel. See, I'm equipping you for some of these conversations that you might have. Now, some of you may not actually like science, and I respect that. That's okay. But I do believe that if you're going to be an effective evangelist, you need to know some science. I really believe that. Because you're going to run into people that have these objections. If I can't trust the very first pages of the Bible, why should I trust anything that the rest of your Bible has to say? So we need to be able to respectfully uh, and graciously overcome those objections. Would you agree? So the glorious hope of the gospel then is found in uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Let's read this together. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many uh, through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God. Praise God. Even though we are guilty of many sins. 
For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? That's part of the message that we bear right there. So even if you go off on a protracted discussion about science with someone, always bring it back around to the centrality of the gospel, Christ crucified for the the sins of the world, and that you and I don't have to be held accountable for our sins. Praise God. All right, I'm going to give you some resources as we end here um, for your own study. Now, this uh, movie poster that you're seeing on the left-hand side there, The Atheist Illusion, what a fantastic movie. It's only one hour by Ray Comfort and Living Waters, ministries. And I I even thought about maybe having a movie night some night and showing that here at church. Would you like that? Okay, let's let's plan on that sometime really soon. Uh, Because man, you'll pick up some tips in sharing your faith in that movie. I mean, it's a really, really great movie. Uh, Answersingenesis.org is a great resource for your own study because these last two weeks, I've only just barely scratched the surface on all the information that's available. I mean, there's information on the global flood. There's proof of that. As a matter of fact, on that point, did you know that there's whale bones that have been found on the summits of Mount McKinley and uh, Mount Everest? What are whale bones doing up on top of mountain peaks, for goodness sake? unless there was a global flood and the water rose above the levels of those very tall mountains. And then there's, there's marine life bones on the top of these really high mountains. So anyway, that's, that's just, I mean, there's so much information like that. It's, it, I'm kind of having to hold myself back because I love this subject. And I just want to blast you right now. But I, you know, I realized this could be a 10-part you know, series on just the science Right, So I, I love this stuff. So go to AnswersInGenesis.org. There's tons of information that you can learn from them, tons of books. Um, also, the movie, and this is a really entertaining one, uh, with Ben Stein. You, you, once in a while, you'll hear me kind of jokingly go, uh, Bueller, Bueller. You remember that? Okay. Okay, that's Ben Stein. He was in a movie called uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And uh, Ben Stein is, uh, uh, I mean, he, he did this documentary called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. And uh, he deals with a lot of, uh, you know, the, the wrong evolutionary mindset versus creation science in that one too. And he deals in that movie with the persecution against scientists that are just going where the, the evidence leads and saying, look, this was designed. There was, this evolution didn't do this. This was designed. And those, those scientists are being persecuted just for going where the evidence leads. And that information is being suppressed. Uh, Also, Unlocking the Mystery of Life, which is a really deep dive into biochemistry, showing how biochemistry, uh, you know, cellular anatomy and physiology could not have possibly uh, evolved. It's too specific. There's too much design. And if you like science and you like biochemistry, you'll like that. But if you don't really like biochemistry too much. I do. So I sat through that two-hour movie, and I, I was like on the edge of my seat. I loved it. But a lot of people would not really probably enjoy that. But if, if you like that sort of thing, Unlocking the Mystery of Life, fantastic resource. And then the movies that I think some of you have already seen before, God's Not Dead, parts one and part two, you know, deal with some of the issues that we've talked about here today. And I'm going to give you one more resource here for your children. This is a book that we have uh, drew study a year or so ago uh, 
by Lawrence Richards called It Couldn't Just Happen, Knowing the Truth About God's Awesome Creation. So, I mean, there's, there's just gobs and gobs of this stuff out there. So there's, there's no shortage of this kind of information for your own edification. And really, teach this stuff to your children. Teach it to your children. Okay, we, we're obligated to come against the, the onslaught of humanism in this nation. And if you, especially if your kids are in public school, my goodness, you need to take some of the stuff that we've brought out today and let your kids hear this. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.